Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. In the month of July, I will have Agent Eric Smith of PS Literary, Anika Mroth-Risi, former executive editor who has worked at Catherine Teigen Books, Simon Pulse, and Scholastic, as my guests for exclusive episodes available only through the Writer Writer Pants on Fire Patreon. Visit www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com forward slash Mindy McGinnis to learn more or check out the link in the episode credits. Today's guest is Rachel Padelic. The idea for her debut novel, Freya's Daughter, book number one in the Wild Women series published by City Owl Press, came about while researching how women in folklore have devolved from powerful to weak due to political and religious changes in history. Through her stories, Rachel hopes to help women reclaim their powerful folklore and see themselves in the archetypes it produces. Rachel joined me today to talk about querying, the agent hunt, and how heavily trends impact both. Dessa has a plan. Work hard, get perfect grades, go to art school. Then she doesn't get in and everything changes. Fans of Morgan Matson and Sarah Dessen will love this story about chasing your dreams and falling in love along the way. Pre-order Your Destination is on the Left by Lauren Spieler today. My listeners love to hear about published authors and their query journey. So I understand that you have pretty extensive stats covering your experience. So why don't you share some of that information with us? I think it could be very useful. I started writing towards publication in 2009. I wrote inspirational historical novel, started querying it in 2010, sent out 12 queries and got five requests, which is not bad. And then I realized I don't want that to be my debut genre. And so I trucked it because I knew that once you debut with a book, you kind of got to stick with that genre for a little while. I wasn't feeling it. So I decided to try something different. In 2011, when I started a YA novel, love YA. So then I started querying it in October 2011, pitched it to agents and editors at a writer's conference. An editor took it to acquisitions. They passed on it because one of the characters had a fin. And at the time, the mermaid thing was like a no-no. They said it was market saturation. So then mm-hmm. I rewrote it and took the tails out. And then I queried it again. During the querying process, I met an author who also had Mermaid YAs published. And she introduced me to her agent who requested it and was reading it. And then I also had a bunch of other queries out. And I was participating in the free online writers conference right on con, which is fabulous. So I've been querying for years on this one. In March 2013, another agent requested it on Write on Con. In April, Jackie called, offered to represent it. So I let the, all the other agents who had it know. And then another agent, I believe two more agents offered to rep it. And I went with one of the other two. Jackie scared me. <laughs> now that I look back, I'm like, oh, she was passionate about my work. But as a newbie, her intensity really scared me. 
So I ended up signing with one of the other agents. On that Paranormal YA, I sent out 86 queries, and I got only 12 requests on that one before I ended up signing with an agent. I signed with the agent. She was a very kind and sweet person. We got along really well, but I think we didn't click as far as the writing part went. She wanted me to rewrite Mm -hmm. it as a horror novel instead of paranormal, and so I did. She submitted it to 22 houses, and all of them passed on it. They thought it was too dark, and they didn't like that I wrote about a female monster. A lot of them were commenting Ah. that it's okay for the male to be a monster but not a female because she wasn't as sweet as they had wanted her to be. So then while on submission, I wrote a middle-grade fantasy novel. After my agent threw in the towel on the YA, we started submitting the middle grade. She sent it to eight houses, and they all passed. And I noticed things weren't clicking, and I had been putting this off for a long time, but we ended up parting ways in 2015. I emailed Jackie (laughs) and Eight Crow, basically, told her that I hadn't messaged anybody else, and I really wanted her to represent me. And then she didn't get back to me. So then I started querying another YA sci-fi that I had written, and that did not do well in the query trenches. Six months later, Jackie emailed me back and said that my email had been in her junk box and was I still looking for an agent. At that time, the fantasy middle grade that I was querying, I had 23 queries and 13 requests. The agents really loved that one, but since it had been seen by editors just a little bit, that mm-hmm. it was considered a used manuscript. So when Jackie took me on, I had nothing Mm -hmm. to to submit. She wanted to know what had happened to that YA that she had first offered on, and I told her it never sold. And she said, well, what about writing an adult novel with a similar concept of female monster? Because maybe the YA market's just not ready at that time. I wrote it, and she loved it. I, I signed with her in September 2015. She began submitting Freya's Daughter, that was the book, in February of 2017, and It was taken to acquisitions by a couple different publishing houses. One of the big ones took it, but they said because it's urban fantasy, they were arguing, I guess, in the meeting over what line to put it in, and they just couldn't figure Mm -hmm. out what they wanted to do, so they ended up passing. So I went with City Owl in June of 2017. Total stats, 165 queries sent, 29 requests, and submission to publishers um, 47. And this is for uh, multiple titles, yeah. correct? Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you had interest early on, but what was stopping you in some ways was your genre and trends. So you mentioned a mermaid book, which, yes, there was a very brief flash of time when you could sell a mermaid book and then it passed. You mentioned paranormal that they requested you to change into a horror, which is fairly common. I think paranormal and horror are both coming back right now, but I think that it's been a long time coming. It's been very hard to sell a paranormal or a horror for a long time in YA. And also, You mentioned urban fantasy. It's still not back. It is not back yet. I have an urban fantasy I wrote over 15 years ago that I am still 
trying to place and desperately want to place because it's very close to my heart. It was the first YA I ever wrote and it is publishable. Like it's, it's a publishable manuscript, but that particular genre is not back yet. And it will be some time because it was flooded so extensively for so long. So I think it's interesting and it's a good point for everyone to be aware of that just because you are not getting anywhere Sometimes it is not a reflection on your writing ability, it's a reflection on the trend exactly. and on the market, which is really hard to process because you no, can't do anything about it. At the time, you don't know if it's your writing or if it's the market because not a lot of people are going to give you the in-depth feedback that would help you to understand which one it is. Even through the submission process, a lot of editors are so busy, they're not going to sit down with your agent and explain the market. If they give a response as to why they passed, they'll give like a one sentence response. This just doesn't fit our list. Mm-hmm. And so that you have no way of knowing that it's the market right. or not. But it sounds like from what you were telling me with your stats for each individual book, your stats query request rate sound pretty good, especially that first one. It sounded like you must write a pretty good query. I think I do. <laughs> it's a really fun challenge. I just had a friend today. She's going to the RWA conference. She was telling me she needs an elevator pitch. And I was like, tell me what your book's about. And I just sent her an elevator pitch. I don't know why, but my brain just finds that unique element in the story. And then here you go. Yeah, that's very fortunate. It's a good skill to have. I'm pretty good at the pitches as well. I haven't had to write a query in a long time, but I do query critiques on my blog for free just so I can stay sharp because it was a skill that I honed for many, many years. And it's something I don't want to lose because you never know when you're going to need those skills. Oh, exactly. And I still use it. Before I go on submission, my agent asks me to write a proposal with a short pitch and then maybe something like a query-ish back cover blurb kind of thing. I definitely still use that. And most of the marketing done on Freya's Daughter, it was stuff that I wrote. It sounds like you're self-taught. You mentioned right on con. So tell me about some of the resources that you used in order to build those skills, those query and those pitch skills. I loved Twilight and I bought it when it was super huge. And I went through and highlighted the different portions of the beginning of the book that really stood out to me as stuff that would grab people. So this is what first grabs people when they start reading a book. Okay, so this is what I need to put in my book, but this is also kind of something that I should probably add to my query. I also went through page after page of Query Shark. Query Shark, Janet Reed, correct? Yeah, uh uh-huh. And then a few of the other really popular query websites at the time. Right on Con, there was a couple other forums that I went on. I would just go on and edit people's queries, and it, it helped me to be able to know what works better because I'm stepping in from from an outsider's point of view. So it helped me to know what works better when I'm working with my own queries. And then right on con was so fabulous because you could put yours out there and and other people would share and and then you had ninjas coming on and agents giving their expert advice to help you know what they're looking for, what they're not, and then how to tighten things up. And it was just was invaluable. Yeah, absolutely. I learned how to write queries from a forum called Agent Query Connect. Now, this was back in like 2000. It was a very active site. I'm not there anymore. I don't know how active it still is, but that's where I learned how to write a query. And much like you, I learned it from looking at other people's queries and seeing what works and what doesn't work. Because when you're looking at your own 
material, it's very hard to see through it and see what's working and what's not working because you know what your hook is. You know what your character's motivation is and your brain auto fills that for you when you're looking at your own query and it might not actually be there in the text. So you need other people to look at it and honing your own skills by helping others is the best possible way. Hands-on experience. Absolutely. I would go on Goodreads also, and I would type up the genre that I was writing the query for, for my book, and like the books that released that year in that genre. And then I would read the back cover blurbs. Trends change. The bones stay the same as far as what they're looking for um, in a query, but the trends change. And so I would look up the newest back cover blurbs, how they did it, and then kind of emulate that too. The back cover blurb is trying to sell the book, and I'm trying to sell my book to an agent, basically, sell the idea of it. So it's kind of the same thing. Well, and looking at what's been done successfully is a wonderful model to use for yourself. Coming up, common writing advice that Rachel and I both hate, as well as tempting the possibility of creative burnout when you write every day. Louise hopes to join Quebec's most elite force, the all-female Queen's Musketeers. She's barely in the city 24 hours, however, when she uncovers a plot to kill the Queen. With help from three new friends, Louise must unravel an increasingly complex political web to save the Queen and keep neutral Quebec out of the U.S. Civil War. Surely this will be enough to get her into the Musketeers, if she can survive. All for One by Sophia Beaumont is out now. So one of the pieces of writing advice that I hear tossed out often is never give up. And I counter that with never stop improving because I feel as if the former advice implies that pure stubbornness can get you published. And that's simply not true. You always have to be taking in feedback and criticism and being aware of what you're doing that is not working because there's something. Sometimes, yes, it could be the genre that you're writing, but even if it is the genre that you're writing, there's always something you can do to improve your work, and it's only going to up your chances. So what are your thoughts on that, and what writing advice do you hear often that you disagree with? So much. My thoughts on that is it doesn't take one thing or two things to be successful or even to get published. It takes a whole slew of things with like a big chunk of luck and timing poured in there. YA and urban fantasy is what I read. So I think even if I look back at some of the YAs or urban fantasies that like 10 years ago hit it real big, I think if they came out now, they wouldn't hit it so big just because the market is constantly changing and what we want is constantly fluctuating. Timing was a huge factor, no matter how well you write, because I've read some amazing novels that just didn't get the following that I thought that they deserved. The luck and the timing are huge factors in that. As far as writing advice, I hate when people say write every day. I have kids and a job and an autoimmune disease, and there are days when I just cannot write. And that's okay because I'll go a week or two without writing anything, and then I'll go two days where I write 10,000 words. It's like it built up in me, and I'm just going to spew it out everywhere <laughs> onto the computer. And so I think it's whatever works for the person as far as their writing. Publishing advice that I've heard a lot that I think is silliness, I guess. As long as you write really well, you'll get published by a big house. Again, I think that that is not true because there's so many other 
aspects to whether or not a house takes on your book. And of course, I can speak from experience where I've had editors with big houses take my stuff to acquisitions and tell my agent that they fought for it. The marketing team gave it a thumbs down as far as not knowing where to place it or the genre of saturated or something along those lines. I mean, obviously, it's it was written fairly well because it was taken to acquisitions and it still got turned down. And I don't like that saying because then that makes authors who can't get with the big house or who can't get published feel like they don't write well. Mm-hmm. It takes so much more than just writing well in order to get on with the publishing house. I agree with you on the write everyday advice. I do not write every day. Mm-hmm. I don't believe I ever have written every day. I think with all advice, there are some cases where it does work. I will say that when I am drafting a book, I do try to write every day. I am a sharper writer when I am writing every day because I don't have to get warmed up. Just like any skill, if you use it regularly, it's stronger. I don't think there's such a thing as like a huge backwards slide. Like I'm a better writer now than I was five years ago. And if I were to take six months off, I will still be a better writer than I was five years ago because I've grown. I'm contracted through 2020 right now. So I'm working on stuff that's already sold and I don't have deadlines at the moment. So I'm not writing. And that doesn't mean that when it's time for me to write again, I'm not going to be able to do it. I might have to warm up a little bit more. Might take me an extra day or so to hop back in. I will grant that, but I'm not going to lose all the skills that I had. And I do have other things that I do. I mean, I agree with you. There are so many assumptions that roll in with write every day. I don't know that writing every day is for me. I don't know that that's who I am as a writer. And I don't know that that is my particular style. And this is what I do for a living. This is the only thing I do. I am a writer and I do not write every day and I make a living off of it. So I don't think that it is advice that you must follow. I see it tossed out a lot as well. And I do disagree with it. And I think that a lot of aspiring writers probably find it intimidating because they do think, well, I can't write every day. I don't have time. I have a day job. I have a family. I have things going on in my life that mean I cannot write every day. Therefore, I will never be a successful writer. So I always push back on that advice myself because I think that it can turn a lot of people away that otherwise might give it a shot. I get burned out when I write every day. I'm on a deadline right now and I'm contracted through 2019 also. And I actually have a book due next month. So right now I'm writing a lot all the time when I can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I'm not on a contract or a deadline, I just kind of pitter patter and write when I feel like it. I need that downtime in order to get creative when it comes to writing. So I need to go see the movies and read other books and take walks and go travel and that sort of thing. So that when it comes down to sit down and write, I have a lot to pull from. I agree with that entirely. I have to refill that creative well. And if I'm constantly outputting, nothing's going to come of that. As you said, I'm going to be burned out. Everything is going out and nothing's coming in. And I haven't, I can't produce in that environment. Yeah, exactly. Well, even when I'm not on deadline, if I can't write every day, which I usually don't, when I'm done writing for the day, I'll create like a paragraph underneath what I last wrote and I'll put it in red. I'll write down where my mind was at at that moment, what I was thinking is going to come next, 
how the characters are feeling in that mm-hmm. scene, just so that when I pick it up again, I don't have to go back and read through it. I can just read that red paragraph and I can kind of put myself back into that scene again and then just go from there. That's a good tip. I like that. I do something similar in that I don't outline anything that I write. I always just uh, flow with my story and I see what's going to happen. And so I will have notes to myself that just look like insane blathering further on down in the document. And they're to lead me to what comes next that I had occur to me randomly. And it's not time for that scene yet. And I write chronologically. So I will just put do the thing with the red balloon. And that means nothing to anyone reading it. But I know what that means. And I know when I get to a certain point, I need to do the thing with the red balloon. Yeah. And even when I'm drafting, I'll use track changes to make comments in certain lines, explain the scenery more. What was the weather? What's the lighting? Stuff like that. So I don't slow down because I can write pretty quickly. And I do that for when I go through and revise it so that I don't slow down and try to remember, wait, what month was it again that we were in? I'm really, really bad about (laughs) details. My copy editors just pull their hair out because I'll say it's Monday and then some comment will be made like, yeah, remember, we're going to go to the movies on Friday. And then the next day they're going to the movies and my copy editor is like, no, they're not because it's Tuesday and they're going to the movies on Friday. And I'm like, who cares? Timelines are something that I really don't pay any attention to because to me, that's not important. That's not the story. Everybody knows it goes Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's something I ignore completely when I'm drafting. And that does cause headaches when it's time to get to copy editing. I will just be like, I don't know, guys. Sometimes I'll even say it's the 15th. The copy editors, which that's their job, but the copy editor will be like, well, if it's the 15th and it's a Wednesday, then this is taking place in this year because that's what the calendar is. And I'm like, dude, we're not doing that. It was like, (laughs) we'll just say mid-month then. It's interesting that you try to keep yourself in something of a continuity with your track changes. And I think that that makes a lot of sense as you progress. So it's not slowing you down while you're writing, but you also don't end up with a huge snafu at the end of it either. Exactly. Because in the Wild Women series, it is timed. They have to go to check-ins once a month, every single month. All of the crap hits the fan very quickly before their next check-in. And so I have to know what days, it's almost like a countdown, like how many days they have before they're going to be arrested. So I have to keep it going and know exactly how many days we've got. And that builds the tension also. This is my first time actually using the track changes comment to keep myself on track. During revision, it's going to save me a lot of hassle of going back through the manuscript and doing searches for like days of the week and stuff like that. It sounds like a really smart approach and I would never, ever, ever be able to write a book like that because I'm just so disinterested in things like time and the season and I'm really poor about that. A lot of my books take place in the Pacific Northwest and it's awesome because no matter what time of year it is, if it rains, that's okay. (laughs) I have to get the weather right because it's always raining here. I live in Ohio and I actually set all my books in Ohio. Our weather is just crazy. It can be 50 one day and it can be 100 the next and and that's totally normal. I don't usually specify the weather because if I wrote Ohio weather realistically, everybody would think I was full of shit. (laughs) I do love the advice about reading. When I'm writing urban fantasy, I read urban fantasy to get in that mindset and that feel 
of what my readers are expecting when they pick up my urban fantasy novel. I watch urban fantasy television shows, drop myself into that world. And then when I'm writing YA, I do the same thing with YA. I only read YA at that time. Yeah, I think that is good advice. You have to know what's going on in your genre in order to, one, emulate it, yet at the same time, two, not copy it. You have to be able to do it your way and do it differently. Yeah, so like my YA that my agent's got right now, it's about deadly sirens. I'm actually drafting the next Wild Women book, but when it comes back time to revising the YA after my agent sees it, I will probably be reading YA, but I won't read anything with mermaids or sirens in it. I just want the feel of that genre and not the actual types of characters in that genre, if, if that makes sense. Because I don't want to accidentally absorb anything from someone else's work. Yeah, and that can happen. That can totally happen. There's nothing intentional in it, but you do absorb sometimes someone's voice. Even a character name you might have picked up from another book that you just you didn't even realize you did it. Yeah, I agree. When I am writing, when I'm drafting, I tend to read outside of the genre that I am writing in, but I read extensively in that genre before I start the drafting in order to get the feel. I work at a library, at a public library. During downtime, when I'm not helping people with their accounts and everything, I will go through our database and see what we are going to order or what's in process at our service center or something, and then start doing some research on that. And I just will shoot my agent emails. There's a YA coming out and it's paranormal and it's this and this. And my poor agent, I'm keeping up on the market trends. When I worked at the library, that was the best possible way for me to know what was going on. And you can see how many people putting it on hold, how many checkouts it's getting. And I kind of watch to see what in my area, what the popularity of that novel is pre-release and post-release. That's very smart. You're lucky to have access to that information. Another way, listeners, if you don't work at a library, you can pay attention to deals that are being made in YA, even just following agents and authors on Twitter. People will tweet about, you know, what they've sold. And that tells you not what the trends are now, but what the trends will be, probably, maybe, like no one ever knows, because it takes 18 months to two years for the major publishers to put a book out. So if you're following those things, you can see what they're thinking might be the hit in the future. Lastly, how Rachel's research into folklore helped shape her Wild Women series and where to find her online. You have had the experience of your work going to acquisitions at the larger houses. You ended up at a smaller press, and there are pros and cons to both. But what has been your experience? What pros and cons do you see in the smaller presses? I am able to get a response back from my editor usually within the same day that I email her, as well as some of the higher ups at the press. When I have questions about marketing or that sort of thing, they usually get back to me within a day or two. They let me know how they're marketing it and what they're doing with it. When they first signed me, they asked me if I had any ideas or if I envisioned the cover a certain way. And I told them my thoughts and I pulled together a bunch of current urban fantasy novels and what their covers kind of represented. And they definitely took my thoughts into consideration and they did a really good job. Of course, they went above and beyond with what I had envisioned. And then when they had the first take on the cover, they sent it to me and they worked with me as far as tweaking it to a place that I thought it best represented the book and spoke to my demographic. I've heard that you can't really get that with the big house or it's less likely. 
It can depend, but I would say it is less likely. I get pretty lucky with mine, but I have a really good relationship with my whole team. So generally when I'm talking with indie authors, they do talk about that level of interaction and that level of response, which is always good to hear. That's for sure. What do you find with marketing on that level? It really doesn't matter whether you're with a big press or a small press. Authors are doing a ton of their marketing. But what do you find being your experience? I'm a part of a debut group for 2018, so for adult fiction. So I'm seeing the paths of big houses, the paths of medium, and then the paths of small. And there's definitely differences in the marketing. I have done most of the marketing myself. My press has definitely done some since the book came out. Pre-release was all me. And I think that that's one of the differences, definitely. I've studied how successful self-published authors do their thing too, because I have a couple friends who are incredibly successful self-published authors. And so I've noticed that one of the ways that they gain success is by releasing books close together something that a big house has a really hard time doing because it has to has so many books and going through such a, a process with each of them. I like that with my small press, can't do it like back to back to back like some of the self-published authors can do. But my first one came out in May. My second one comes out at the end of this year. And my third one comes out in spring of next year. And so I like that they can come out closer together to kind of gain a, a quicker readership, I think. It's hard to stand out. It's hard to get attention. It's hard to get people to look at you. It is. And you don't want to be one of those authors that that's all you tweet about. That gets old fast. And I really don't think it sells books. I don't think so either. Let's talk about your series, The Wild Women. It begins with Freya's Daughter, which is a story that came about from your experience studying women in folklore. So can you talk a little bit about the inspiration for the series? The whole Wild Women series, it starts with Freya's Daughter It's about folkloric women coming out of hiding to fight the patriarchy. I love studying women throughout history. And I noticed when, and I love urban fantasy, and I noticed with a lot of urban fantasy novels, the creatures in it, a lot of them are a part of types of folklore where the men are at the top of the hierarchy. Like you've got your alphas in the pack and you've got the head vampire and that sort of thing. And I love those types of creatures, but I wanted to see a book where they were more matriarchal. And then of course my study of women's history and women's folklore and mythology, I saw so many different types of folkloric creatures where it was all female. And I noticed a huge trend, a back then trend in all the female folklore was that pre-patriarchal folklore about females where that they're wild and strong and powerful and all that usually connected to nature in some way. And then post-patriarchal, a lot of that folklore got kind of turned on its head. Whereas if they were wild, they were dominated by a male or they were saved by being married in a church. They possessed their wildness still. Then um, they were considered like the evil sorceress or some sort of witch or some sort of negative supernatural being and so i take the holger for example they used to be considered in norse folklore they were um the protectors of the forest and they had bark on their back and they were connected to the trees and they ran around the woods then they kind of transitioned into these man-eating beasts that would lure helpless men 
into the woods and then have sex with them. And then if they weren't satisfied with the sex, they would eat them. And the only way to save a Holdra, to save her soul, was to marry her in a church. In a lot of the folklore, they had tails. Mine don't. But her tail would fall off, but she would become ugly. But she would be a good wife for the rest of her days. So I wanted to go tell a story about folkloric women who were raised believing that patriarchal bent to their mythology and then learned that that was not who they really were. And then that whole process of being woke. And then I used mythology of goddesses that used to be worshipped, pre- and post-patriarchal goddesses. I made those the beginnings of the folkloric women. So like the backstory is that um, when patriarchy came down and started to spread the goddesses of temples, they saw what was happening and they breathed some of their abilities into their high priestesses. And that's how you have the different type of folkloric women. They created them to protect human women because they saw what was coming. So the first book has five different groups. We've got our succubi, which were created by Lilith, and the mermaids were created by Agatharis, and then we've got the Holdra were created by Freya, the harpies were created by Inanna, and the Rilsiki were created by Mokash. And so these are actual folkloric females. These are actual goddesses who, who were worshipped in history. And then the second book, I'm bringing in more folkloric women from different parts of the world. I'm having a good time with it. That's so cool. It sounds awesome. So tell us, lastly, what is up next for you? I know you said you're working on the series still and you've got a YA that you're working on. So tell us what's next for you and where listeners can find you online. The next Wild Women book comes out at the end of this year. That one's called Lilith's Children. And then the third and final one comes out spring 2019. And that one's called Ishtar's Legacy. Yeah, I've got a paranormal YA about a siren who falls for the first human boy she's supposed to be hunting. And that one my agents got. And then hopefully that one will produce something. (laughs) I'm everywhere. My website is rachelpadelic.com. P-U-D-E-L-E-K. And on Twitter, I'm Rachel Pud. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. But you can access all those through my website. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to WriterWriterPantsOnFire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist.